Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. The Bible is such a strange thing if you think about it. On the one hand, it looks like a big book. On the other hand, it's really a library of books. It's loaded with very different kinds of literature, from poetry and wisdom to history and prophecy. Dozens of people were involved in its production over the centuries, and most important of all, it claims that the Creator God inspired it all. In this presentation, Jerry Weir will briefly covers what the Bible is and how Christians decided which books belong in it, how we transmitted it over the eons, and why other collections of books like the Apocrypha, Pseudopigrapha, and Gnostic Gospels didn't pass muster. Here now is episode 393, Why Christianity, part 6, The Origin and Authority of the Bible. We're going to talk about the Bible. And I think this is probably the most difficult subject that we're going to cover because it's the largest, uh, has the most diversity of, of different things to cover. So I'm going to try and do the best job to, to get through the material and um, hopefully uh, engender a nice question and answer uh, session afterward. So the origin and authority of the Bible. What is the Bible? So we hold this book right here, the Bible in our hands. It's been through a long history though. Didn't come to us like this. It's not all nice and bound, published in English, printed in very legible writing uh, for us. Um, And so uh, the Bible, let's go back to the beginning of how we got the Bible from the original sources. When I say original sources, I'm referring to the, what are called the books of the Bible, which actually aren't books like we think of modern books. They're actually scrolls. Comes from a a Greek word, biblia, which means books, but it refers to scrolls because they didn't have our modern conception of books actually until the end of the first century when the, the codex, which is the ancient predecessor to our bound books came about. Uh, The Greek word biblia, meaning books, actually then went into Latin biblia, which actually is a singular noun, which means book. And that's how we get the term Bible. Bible means the book in Latin. Uh, And the Bible is just a collection of writings that contain the beliefs and the history of the Christian faith. Um, From the Old Testament and Judaism into uh, the New Testament with the Christian faith, uh, faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Another word that uh, comes up when talking about the Bible is canon. I'd say the the canon of scripture. Uh, Canon actually comes from a Greek word, kanon, and it means a a rule or a standard. And it's just the writings in the Bible that are referred to as canon are the holy scripture that are writings that are authoritative, writings that uh, are uh, somehow are meant to be normative for understanding the Christian faith. Now, in, originally, uh, paper didn't exist in, in the way we know modern paper looks like. It, actually, there's a plant called papyrus. Uh, it's an Egyptian reed plant. And here's a picture of it right here. And what happens is they take the plant and they split it and lay it down and they cross it on each other. 
and then they press it and dry it. And this turns into what is known as papyrus, ancient paper. And, and this is what the original scrolls of the New Testament and Old Testament were written on. And so what, this would be a picture right here of a papyrus scroll, very thin, very delicate, uh, in which that also kind of explains uh, why the papyrus, uh, there aren't a whole lot of them uh, for the New Testament. There's only 127 fragments in existence, uh, whereas when you get to um, uh, parchment or, or vellum, it's much more durable than uh, this uh, delicate fiber-based plant paper. Uh, here's a picture of much more like what we see uh, scrolls looking like. And this is a scroll in, a good, in good condition. It's actually uh, part of the great Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery in the uh, 1940s. But then here's a, a much more, this is a, a parchment scroll, much more durable, something uh, easier to write on. Now, the Bible, in the original sources, original languages, we have uh, the Old Testament in Hebrew, parts of it also in Aramaic, and then the New Testament in Greek. And the Old Testament was written over the span of a thousand years by numerous individuals. And they were is written in different areas as well. Some was written in uh, the Palestine area, others of it was written in uh, Babylonia, and was written over this long course of a millennia. Uh, traditionally, the Hebrew Bible is, is ordered a little bit differently than the, our English Bible that we currently have, the Protestant English Bible. Uh, there's actually 22 books, or 24, depending upon how they arrange the, some of the uh, books, and whether or not they connect them together to make one book. Uh, but it's, it's made up of what's called the Tanakh, and, and that's basically a three-part uh, arrangement. Uh, the first five books of the Bible, the law, are called the Torah. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. The, uh, there's eight books called the Prophets, the Nevi'im, and uh, I have the Prophets list, listed there. And it's interesting to note that the, the 12 minor prophets at the end of the English uh, Old Testament are actually a single book called uh, the Book of the Twelve or just the 12 for short. And then there's 11 books called the writings, the Ketuvim, and they're the remainder of the writings, remainder of the books listed there. This, uh, these 22 or 24 book in the uh, Hebrew Bible, it corresponds to our current 39 book uh, Old Testament in the Protestant English Bible. Uh, here's a picture of the Aleppo Codex, the oldest uh, codex that was in existence until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the Aleppo Codex actually comes uh, to us in a very late period from the 10th century uh, after Christ. So that's a thousand years after Christ, which makes it almost 2,000 years after the beginning writings of the Old Testament. The Aleppo Codex is part of what's called a, a Masoretic tradition. Uh, the Masoretes were a uh, Jewish scribal school that developed a very unique system for trying to record the, the words of the scriptures and how to pronounce them. They, they developed this vowel pointing, which are all these little dots that you see around the letters, because in Hebrew, there really are no true vowels. There's some consonantal vowels, but most of them are just consonants. And so you, you had to memorize what the word was in order to know how to pronounce it. But the, the Masoretes uh, developed this system to try to preserve uh, that so it wouldn't become just an oral tradition.
Uh, here's another picture of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. And what you can also see is that the words uh, run together very, very closely. It's hard to distinguish them. And actually, the Isaiah scroll here is unpointed. It's just consonants running one after another almost. There's little spaces between some of the words. But in the New Testament, as we'll see, though, there actually is no spaces. It's literally letter for letter, one after another, in giant lines down the page. Here's a, the Dead Sea Scroll from Isaiah. So the New Testament, written in a much shorter span of time, 50 years by approximately 10 individuals, but also in geographically distinct places too. Uh, real quick, the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, has 27 books just like our English Bible does. You have four Gospels, one historiography, 21 letters, and then one apocalyptic book, Revelation. Uh, the earliest fragment of the New Testament is P52. It is a very small fragment, but it's super important. Uh, it was discovered in uh, 1930 uh, or 40s uh, by a guy named uh, Colin Roberts. And it's a very important discovery because this actually would be a second, potentially a second generation copy. It's been dated... Uh, by three independent uh, paleographers, world-class paleographers to be between 100, 125, 150 A.D. And so if the Gospel of John was, was written more toward the late of the first century, this could be a first generation, meaning a second reproduction of the original. Now, it only preserves uh, four or five verses here for us, um, but it's from a codex because it's written on both sides. And, and that's interesting because that means it comes from the latter part of the first century when the codex was first, latter part of the first century AD, when the codex was first um, invented or, or first uh, um, instituted. Now, when we get to more full manuscripts of the New Testament, here, this is the Codex Sinaiticus. And this actually is one of the fullest and earliest uh, manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. The letters run together just word after word, no spaces, and so you, you have to be able to distinguish when a word ends and when a word begins, and it's all in capital letters as, as well. No punctuation, no, uh, there's, there's nothing in the text, just letters, just letter after letter. And the question then becomes is, well, how did these different writings get put together into what we currently have in this book right here? And what they call this is the, the criterion, or the criteria, plural, for canon, or canonicity. What's the canonicity process? How does something become part of the rule and standard of the faith? Well, there's three major criteria. One is apostolicity. What this means is that the writings that... Find, have found their way into our Bible are there because they've been, they've been written by or attributed to somebody who was closely associated with an apostle. Either it was an apostle or somebody who worked with them. Secondly, orthodoxy. And what this means is that the, a writing was considered to be part of the canon if it agreed with and cohered with other writings that were known to be from an apostle, meaning there were, there were no contradictory statements or things being made in the text uh, that would go against the grain of the rest of what has been written. And you'll see this becomes important once we get into potentially other writings that didn't make it into the Bible. 
Thirdly, uh, Catholicity. And now this doesn't mean uh, whether or not the Roman Catholic Church embraced or decided to make a, a writing canonical. This means that it was actually universally uh, used by the church, meaning in different places throughout the empire, people recognized certain writings as being authoritative or apostolic in nature. And so that's what Catholicity means, that it was embraced by the church at large. Now, there are other writings that are not part of the 66 books that we currently have in the Protestant English Bible today. Uh, these other writings are known as the Apocrypha, which this is just a Greek word that means something hidden or secret or obscure. And they're called the Apocrypha because they weren't included uh, in the canon. Uh, but there, there's a story to tell behind that as well. There's other writings called the Pseudepigrapha, which is just basically a Greek word that means false writings. And they're called false writings because they're falsely attributed to other authors. So they're, they're written anonymously. Nobody knows who really wrote them, but they put the name of a famous person, a famous Bible character, or a famous apostle or other disciple uh, to try to gain traction um, and attention, but they, they didn't write them. And then finally, there's these Gnostic writings, which just is writings of knowledge. The Greek word uh, gnosis means knowledge. And uh, the Gnostic writings are particularly interesting. Uh, they deal with a sect, um, a Christian sect, that uh, thought about having some sort of secret knowledge was the means by which you attain salvation. So uh, there's a huge list of these apocryphal writings and uh, pseudepigrapha. And I haven't listed the uh, Gnostic writings, but there's tons of them as well. The Apocrypha writings come from before Christ during the second century BC, uh, as well as the Pseudepigrapha, but the Gnostic writings come actually after Christ in like the second century and on AD. Now, why would some of the Apocryphal books not be in the Bible? However, if you guys have ever read a different type of Bible, for example, like a Roman Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha actually is included. Well, quick story is that during the Reformation time, the Protestant Reformation time, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, actually had their own Reformation. And in response to some of the allegations that Protestants were levying against the Roman Catholic Church for having practices that had no scriptural basis, they decided to include Apocryphal writings in their canon in order to defend their church practices. This happened in 1546 at the Council of Trent. And so from then on, the Apocrypha has actually been part of the Roman Catholic Bible. Now, let's look at 2 Maccabees, or 2 Maccabees here, 12, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It says here, the noble Judas, this is not Judas Iscariot, by the way, <laughs> uh, ex ex exhorted the people to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened as the result of the sin of those who had fallen. He also took up a collection, man by man, to the amount of 2,000 drachmas of silver and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. In doing this, he acted very well and honorably, taking account of the resurrection. For if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. 
Therefore, he made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. If you guys know anything about the Protestant Reformation, one of the charges against the Roman Catholic Church was the sale of indulgences for absolution of sin. And this text right here to Maccabees is intentionally included in the Apocrypha to defend that practice of the church. There's uh, other ones, such as in Tobit 4. So you'll be laying up for good, a good treasure for yourself against the day of necessity, for almsgiving delivers from death and keeps you from going into the darkness. Indeed, almsgiving for all who practice it is an excellent offering in the presence of the Most High. And then also in Tobit 12, Prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. A little with righteousness is better than wealth with wrongdoing. For it is better to give alms than to lay up gold. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Those who give alms will enjoy a full life. But those who commit sin and do wrong are their own worst enemies. So both these passages are talking about the way to... Uh, cover or atone for sin through almsgiving. Almsgiving purges away sin and saves you from death, it says. Now, uh, I wanted to put in a couple, uh, two quotes here from Gnostic writings, one from the Gospel of Thomas, so you can understand a little bit of the absurdity and the reasons why the, uh, the apocryphal writings and the pseudepigrapha and also the Gnostic writings pretty much their own character them, that when you read them, it discredits themselves because they do not profess orthodoxy, meaning they do not cohere with the rest of scripture. There are blatant contradictions, and even in the Gnostic writings, they're just flat out fantastical. Like they're, they're, fantasy, they're very fantasy-based. But here's, here's an interesting one. At the end of the Gospel of Thomas, actually the last saying of the writing in 114, Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, Look, I will draw her in so as to make her male, so that she too may become a living male spirit similar to you. But I say to you, every woman who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tall order. Yeah. <laughs> So, and, and there's, lo there's lots of stuff like this in these Gnostic writings. I mean, I'll give you, uh, this is a long quote, but let me just summarize it really quick. So Jesus is down by a brook. He gets a, some water together and he like squishes together some clay and, and creates these pigeons or sparrows from them. And then he claps his hands and they fly away. And then some other boy comes over and like, and like um, messes with his little pool of water and criticizes him. And he basically brings a curse upon the boy and the boy withers up and basically nearly, pretty much dies. At the end of it says here, um, Jesus departed and went to Joseph's house, but the parents of him, the one who withered up, uh, took him up, bewailing his youth and brought him to Joseph and accused him for that thou hast such a child which doeth such deeds. Basically, Jesus ends up like killing a young boy. And then in another Gnostic gospel, uh, Jesus uh, curses uh, some people who make fun of him. And, and I think it's, uh, if I remember right, they, they end up having, get, they get attacked by like, wild animals or something. Like, basically, the point being is that there's all these crazy stories. In the Acts of Paul and Thecla, basically, this is a, uh, when Paul is in Ephesus, it says that he fought the wild beasts and, 
And what they did is they made up a story about what that was like. And he actually meets this lion. He talks to the lion. He prays the lion. They worship God together. He baptizes the lion. And then the lion goes off at, with him on, on a journey. And it, it's just, it, it's really these kind of crazy made up stories. And if you want to read them, you can. Uh, but it, there's good reason why, why nobody really uh, worries about them not being in the Bible. And before we go on to talking about the actual text of the Bible and its reliability, uh, when people ask you, well, what about the missing books of the Bible? Aren't you concerned that maybe the Bible's not complete or there's, there's parts of it missing? Uh, well, I think that that's actually the wrong question to ask, and, I think, and you should turn it around on them and ask them, well, are you concerned about actually the writings that are currently in the Bible? Because what they typically want is they want to try to have a reason for not actually believing what is in the Bible and are worried about what may not be included in the Bible. And so they focus upon the, the skepticism of, well, perhaps the Bible is not complete and therefore I don't have to believe it. That the, the types of writings that have been approved by godly men and women who have the marks of apostolic orthodoxy and Catholicity, that they don't want to have to adhere to those. And so people who worry about these other books that haven't made it in the Bible, other lost books of the Bible, what they're looking for is a scapegoat. They're looking for a way to not actually have to uh, listen to and make the Holy Scripture canon, something that is authoritative in their life. And we'll talk about what it means to be a th for the Scriptures to be authoritative. But the reliability of the Bible. How many manuscripts of the Bible do we actually have? You know, if you look at uh, Plato, if you look at Plato, if uh, the column on the right here, if that represents the manuscripts of Plato that we possess in the extant manuscripts, meaning the, ex the manuscripts in existence, and then the New Testament manuscripts are on your right, my left, do you think that, that, that that's a lot more manuscripts? Is that like significantly more? It is, it is quite a bit more. Uh, but actually, there's more than that. There is a ton more, a lot more. That's, a, that's about, I couldn't get more pictures on there, but that's a, there, there's even more than that, but that's about the ratio of manuscript evidence between one of the most popular classical authors, Plato, and the New Testament. We have 50, over 5,800 manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, and if you add in the Syriac, the Armenian, Aramaic, Coptic, and all the other ancient languages um, from before, I think it's the... 10th century, 11th century AD, they add up to 24,000 manuscripts. Actually, Josh McDowell and uh, one of his associates um, wrote a bibliographic test document weighing up the evidence of the manuscripts that if the average classical writer, like Plato, was four feet high, the New Testament would be a mile high if you stack the manuscripts on top of each other. The Old Testament would be a mile and a half, and you put biblical manuscripts together, it'd be two and a half miles tall versus four feet. That's, I think that's uh, four times the height of the World Trade Center. So it's just, it's overwhelming. And the interesting thing about, like, uh, I, I love listening to Daniel Wallace, and he's done a number of debates with Bart Ehrman, who's sort of like the most popular agnostic skeptic right now, 
uh, with some of his books, uh, the big one, Misquoting Jesus, where uh, some of his, one of his famous quotes that uh, the manuscripts we have today are just copies of copies of copies, which could have been copies of copies of which everybody could have tampered with all the way up until when we currently have the oldest ones, not ever really knowing what the original could have said. Therefore, we have no way of knowing what the Bible really says. Therefore, we shouldn't believe the Bible. That's his string of logic. But that's, that, that's actually not really a good way of thinking because every other ancient text of which the history of like the Roman Empire, for example, Julius Caesar, any of the Roman Caesars, um, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, the, all these ancient authors, the number of manuscripts that we have from them are so significantly less, and yet historically they are not questioned like the New Testament is. The way that uh, the reliability of the New Testament that, um, that Daniel Wallace says is that we have an embarrassment of riches compared to all secular sources. Ridiculous how much more information we have. Now, Bart Ehrman tries to turn that around, though, and say, well, if the New Testament ha it has like 138,162 words in it, the average amount of errors found, I shouldn't say the word errors, variance, changes in the text is 400,000. That's 2.5 variations per word in the New Testament. Now, if you just hear that statistic, uh, that would seem to cast a lot of doubt in somebody's mind, I think. But the problem is, is that the more manuscripts you have, potentially the more variants you have, but the more manuscripts you have, on the other hand, the more ways you can to you have to be able to deduce the, how the errors got introduced. Meaning the less manuscripts you have, the less probability you can understand when errors were introduced and how they came to be, and therefore know how to correct them. Let me move ahead here. So two dangers, radical skepticism and absolute certainty. These are the two things to stay away from. One being that because we don't have the original Bible, we have no autographs, none. We don't even know how many copies were copied between the original and the, late early, and the earliest manuscripts we have. But, and so if you, if you have that in your mind, then you could go all the way to, well, if we can't know the originals, then how do we know if anything we have is actually true? That's Bart Ehrman, agnosticism. We don't, we don't know if we actually have a reliable text. Now, the other, if you swing the other way, you can say, well, I'm not going to actually acknowledge the limits of my knowledge, and I'm going to go with absolute certainty, thinking that every single thing we have must be able to be completely verified objectively. And so these are two big spectrums of which neither one is correct. But I, I want to talk about here, a few minutes left, the authority of Scripture. Now, this comes from inspiration. Now, what do I mean by inspiration? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, if anybody has ever read this passage before, it says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. If we take a little more literal translation, the ESV, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The term inspired by God comes from the Greek theopneustos, Meaning, just means God breathed. And the term inspiration, is, it comes from a Latin derivative, um, inspirare, meaning to, to breathe into something for either influence or animation or effect. And so what this is saying is that scripture was brought forth by God. 
2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this explains when it says that the scriptures are inspired by God, it's that it's not it, mankind, humans, did not actually come up with the content and design for scripture. That it was something that God did. Men spoke from God, from the inspiration, the inspirare, the God breathing into them what he wanted, the message he wanted them to communicate. And as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, this carried along, the Greek word pharaoh, uh, means to lead or bring along. And it's kind of like, it wasn't that they were given a download of the text. It's that God was putting in them and inspiring and leading them along as they were writing the message that he wanted written. Even if it was by the hands of a scribe or what's known as an amanuensis, a uh, professional uh, writer, basically. And I would, I would like to explain the inspiration of Scripture uh, based upon what's known as the concursive theory. And this me, I just want to read a quote here real quick that describes what the concursive theory. Concursive meaning two writings at the same time. Inspiration, this is by uh, Lorraine uh, Bettner, inspiration must have been somewhat like the touch of the driver on the reins of the racing steeds. The preservation of the individual styles and mannerisms indicates as much. Under this providential control, the prophets were so governed that while their humanity was not superseded, their words to the people were God's words and have been accepted as such by the church in all ages. Hence, we see that the Christian doctrine of inspiration is not the mechanical, lifeless process which unfriendly critics have often represented it to be. Rather, it calls the whole personality of the prophet into action, giving full play to his own literary style and mannerisms, taking into consideration the preparation given the prophet in order that he might deliver a particular kind of message, allowing for the use of other documents or sources of information as these were needed. And I think that this kind of explains uh, the way that Luke starts out his gospel when he talks about consulting the eyewitnesses and the, when it says here uh, in the beginning of Luke, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So it seems that Luke has explained that he's been, he's been following things. He's been keeping up. He himself, as a human, has actually been gaining knowledge. And then through the Spirit of God, he then writes this account to convey a gospel record of the ministry, life and ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. Now lastly, when we talk about the Scripture and the authority of Scripture, it's not just that it's a book that says what the rules are, the do's and the don'ts. I want to end here by reading a quote by N.T. Wright in his book, Scripture and the Authority of God, where he talks about the authority of Scripture extends far beyond just it being a normative list of how the church is supposed to practice the faith. What he says here is the authority of Scripture is really a shorthand for the authority of God exercised through Scripture. 
And God's authority is not merely his right to control and order the church, but his sovereign power exercised in and through Jesus and the Spirit to bring all things in heaven and on earth into subjection to his judging and healing rule. God is at work through scripture to energize, enable, and direct the outgoing mission of the church, genuinely anticipating thereby the time when all things will be made new in Christ. At the same time, God is at work by the same means, meaning through scripture, to order the life of the church and of individual Christians to model and embody his project of new creation in their unity and holiness. So the authority of scripture, this Bible that we base our lives on, it has reliability of its text that is far beyond any secular source out there. It is beyond dispute that the manuscript evidence verifies that we can trust the scriptures that we read. And the modern translations with the new uh, research and the manuscript discoveries being much more accurate, the leading scholars in Greek have averred that at least 95% or more of the text can be validated to beyond disputable means. And then the last thing I think I want to say is just the idea of the scriptures being a guide for our life is something that extends beyond just trying to find out, well, what should I do in my personal life? The reason why this is authoritative is because it tells us what's going on in the world. It tells us the program of God, and it gives us an understanding of who we are and how we fit in with the entire world and what God is going to be bringing about through the Messiah. So that's uh, what I have for the origin and and authority of the Bible. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to leave your comments or questions, come on to restitutio.org and look for episode 393, part 6 of our Why Christianity class, The Origin and Authority of the Bible. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Speaking of which, on our last episode which was part five of this class, focusing on the resurrection. A number of people wrote in. One of them was Jared, who asked about Matthew 27, 52, where it talks about the resurrection, not of Jesus, but of these other people who entered the holy city and appeared to many. And he asked the question, if these saints refers to those those mentioned in Romans 8, 28 to 30, who were foreknown, called, justified, and glorified. Well, to be honest, Jared, I've never heard that before. That's an interesting thought. I I always think of the saints foreknown as those who were previously known by God in a non-specific way, but those who are are forebearers in the faith. I know that Calvinists would, would universalize that text to refer to all Christians, whether they exist yet or not, Uh, But uh, I've never thought of it as connecting to those specific people who were raised when Jesus either was crucified or raised. I I think it's kind of ambiguous in Matthew 27. Would love to hear anyone else's thoughts if anyone has uh, a firm position on Matthew 27, 52. So far as I know, it is a very textually certain text. It's not something that depends on manuscript variations. And, And so on those grounds, I don't have any reason to doubt it. Uh, you know, if we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that other people got raised as well, is not all that outside the realm of possibility. Presumably, these people would have died again, though, and that this wouldn't be a resurrection into a glorified body 
uh, unless you want to add in a doctrine of another set of ascensions, like Jesus ascended into heaven, and I'm real leery of doing something like that. Berean Thinker also wrote in on our last episode saying, Hi, Sean, been enjoying the class thus far. While not related to this episode or any particularly, I thought it might be useful to let listeners know if they want to support Restitutio without even having to use any of their own funds that the ministry is listed on Amazon Smile. Been a listener for a while now and just stumbled upon that by chance recently. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks, uh, Brian Thinker. Yes, Restitutio is a legitimate nonprofit registered in the United States of America and in New York State. So I guess it shouldn't surprise me that it is listed on Amazon Smile, but uh, I have not really looked into it until you said this. So I did look into it and I set up the back end stuff just to make sure everything goes to where it's supposed to go. Now, if you want to list Restitutio as the charity of choice when you make Amazon purchases, I have a link to that right on the sidebar in restitutio.org. Or if you click the donate button at the very bottom of that, I've got a little explanation and a link to Amazon Smile. Or in the show notes for this episode, you can find it there. So uh, if anybody would like to do that, I think they donate half of 1% or something like that to charity of uh, purchases made. But you do have to make your purchases through smile.amazon.com. You can't just do it through regular amazon.com in order for it to count. So anybody who would like to do that would appreciate it. It would help. Every little bit does help in both uh, taking care of regular costs as well as promotion to get this message out there. And along those lines, uh, I tell you, it's been an exciting week for interviews. Uh, For whatever reason, when it rains, it pours. I've been interviewed three times over the past week. I got interviewed by a gentleman down in Florida who comes from a oneness background in a ministry called Bread Breakers. And I got to explain biblical Unitarianism to him. I got interviewed by the Transfigured YouTube channel by Sam there, who asked me about my background and growing up sort of in the shadow. I wasn't really in the way international, but my parents were. And so he had a similar experience. We talked a lot about that and what we learned from our growing up with the, the good and the bad from that ministry in our background. And then I, just yesterday, I got interviewed by Paul Williams at Blogging Theology, who has a somewhat popular YouTube channel primarily for Muslims. And Paul Williams himself is an Englishman who is broadcasting from London, uh, but he is himself a Muslim, and so are most of his listeners. And it's kind of interesting to see the comments of the Muslims as they uh, work through the various points I make about Trinitarian bias in especially evangelical Bible translations. And uh, they're very interested in that material. Of course, I can't agree with Muslims all the way. I do believe Jesus died for our sins and God raised him from the dead. And I have very strong, compelling reasons for that, as we've been discussing in this very class. So uh, these things are all connected together. But uh, just wanted to let you know about that. If you look me up on YouTube, you should be able to find any of those three interviews. And so this message is getting out about who God is, about who Jesus is, and uh, you know we have no idea what uh, God can do with materials that are online. So many people I hear from, they say, oh wow, I just came across this video of Kiga Chandler's, or I came across Dale Tuggy's podcast, or this Anthony Buzzard book, or whatever. And you know we're all on the same team here, working to 
bring the truth of the Bible out into the wider public society now that we live in an age where these things cannot be censored, where information is readily accessible and people are able to ask the questions that they need to ask about, hey, why is, why is my church statement of belief so different than the Bible I read? That's really the question we're asking as restorationists. How do we get back to authentic Christianity? Whatever that happens to be, I'm ready to go there. So thanks everyone for listening here to the end. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.